Okay, welcome again. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We are in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 29. Anyone need a Bible? You can just raise your hand. Luke chapter 7. We want to make sure that in addition to hearing God's word, you have it right in front of it, in front of you rather, where you can see God's word. There's something about seeing his word and reading it that just really makes the word a friend. And that's what the, the Lord wants the Bible to be, our friend. And so in verse 29 of Luke chapter 7, it says this, when all the people heard him meaning Jesus, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like the children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Verse 35, but wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Please open up your hearts. Rather, Father, please open up your heart to us this morning so that we may see clearly into it, Lord, your heart for us. I just pray, Lord, for everyone in here. God, we're coming in from so many different walks of life, and yet you have a message for all of us. Please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. So last week we were in verses 18 through 28. We're going through Luke chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we read about last week the interaction between uh, John the Baptist and Jesus. Truly, truly an amazing interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist where John actually is in prison. That interaction wasn't in, in person. Uh, John was languishing in prison. You could say sweating in prison because it was in one of the, a prison, one of the hottest places in the Middle East there over near the Dead Sea. That's a prison that he was in. He had been arrested. He was thrown into prison. And he became discouraged, so discouraged that doubts began to plague him. Doubts, this man who uh, the Bible says, uh, Jesus says, was the greatest prophet who ever lived. And so he began to have doubts, and he sent messengers to Jesus, and he asked Jesus, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah, or should we be looking for another? Are you the Son of God? Really? Are you? Are you really the one we have been waiting for? And, and Jesus sent messengers back to John with this word. He didn't say yes or no. That would have been 
too shallow of an answer. Actually, what he said was this. He said, verse 22, go and tell John and the things that you have seen and heard that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And so this message from Jesus back to John would have brought great peace to his troubled and his doubting heart. Why? Because the Old Testament prophets had prophesied to the people that when Messiah, the Son of God, came to the world, there would be an outpouring of physical, miraculous healings unseen in the history of the world. The blind seeing, the lame walking, the lepers being cleansed, the, even the dead being raised to life. And, and, and John knew these writings. He knew them inside and out, and he would have been greatly encouraged and strengthened by these words from Jesus. His heart, his troubled heart, would have embraced the words and given his heart peace. Well, verse 29 that we started off this morning says that others, many others embrace the message of Jesus. It says when all the people heard him, Jesus says even the tax collectors justified God, meaning even the very worst people of the day, that's who the tax collectors represented, the very worst people of the day, they believed in Jesus. That's what it's saying there. But then verse 30 says that the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God, meaning the religious leaders. The Pharisees were religious leaders. They were, Pharisee means separate or separatist or separate from the people. And those people, they rejected the will of God. So pause. Let's, let's let that sink in. Imagine in spite of this outpouring of physical healings, in spite of God making himself so clear to these people, God's literally crying out to the people through Jesus' life. He is the one. Come to him. He is the one. Come to him. He's the one. Come to him. He's crying out. Nevertheless, There were many who rejected Jesus. And so Jesus says in verse 31, he says, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you. And you did not dance. We mourned to you. And you did not weep. Uh, What Jesus is saying, he's saying to the people, he's saying to those living in Israel at the time, listen, I love you so much, but this is what you're like. I've done everything that I know how to do to bring you to me. I've played the flute for you, meaning I've given you a taste of the joy of the life with me. I've given you a taste of that, but you have rejected me. I mourned for you. I've showed you my broken heart. He did. He wept over the people. But you have rejected me anyway. And then in verse 33 and 34, Jesus goes on to describe what accompanied their rejection. They not only rejected Jesus, 
they justified their rejection of him in this way. Verse 33, this is what they said, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he's got a demon. In verse 34, and the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, has come. He's come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So John the Baptist, what Jesus, Jesus is saying here is that John the Baptist, the greatest prophet that ever lived, Jesus said, in verse 28, he says, there was never a prophet born of woman greater than this man. He comes onto the scene. He introduces the world to Jesus. He says, behold. What did John the Baptist say when Jesus came to him? He said to the people for all to hear, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Instead of embracing the message of John the Baptist, the people said he had a demon. The guy's devil-possessed. Why? Verse 33 says, well, he, he didn't eat, meaning he fasted and he prayed on a regular basis, and he didn't drink, meaning he didn't drink wine because he was a Nazarite from birth. So they said, he's got a demon. This guy's got a demon. He doesn't go out and, and, and party and celebrate. But Jesus, verse 34 says, who did eat, in fact, he went to wedding and feasts and festival and celebrate, he even turned water into wine to bless the, uh, the people who attended weddings. It says they called him a glutton and a wine-bibber. A glutton was someone who ate until they got sick. A wine-bibber was a drunk. They didn't like Jesus' message either, so they called him a drunk. They called Jesus a drunk. Now, how is that possible? Well, the answer is this. How is that possible? Here's how it's possible. Man is capable of saying and doing anything, anything, in order to keep himself outside of God's rule over his life. Man's capable of saying and doing most anything to keep God's rule out. I want, to, I want to spend some time on this because this one's really important. I want to back up. I want to back up all the way to the first book in the Bible, Genesis. You don't have to go there, but I want to back up there. In the Garden of Eden, when Satan tempted Eve, she, she initially, she resisted him. It's what the Bible says. She resisted Satan. She said to Satan, I'm not going to eat the fruit of the tree in the middle of the midst of the garden because God said, you shall not eat it lest you die. And what did Satan say? He said, you won't die. You won't die. God doesn't want you to eat that fruit lest you become like him, lest you become like God, like a God. And that was too much temptation for Eve to bear, and she ate the fruit. 
And then it says that she gave the fruit to Adam, who was right there with her, and he also ate it. Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God. That was just the, that's the heart and soul of the temptation that they gave into. They wanted to be like God. They didn't want God's rule, God's perfect, loving, grace-filled, blessed rule, meaning his governance, his reign, his claim of ownership over their lives. They, they, their lives, their lives were his. Our lives are his. But their lives were, were his, but they didn't want that. They didn't want God's rule in their lives, his perfect, loving, grace-filled, blessed rule over their lives. And they rebelled against it, and they cast off God's rule over their lives. Uh, Psalm 2 describes as much as, as, as good as anywhere else in the Bible. It describes man's rebellious heart when God is Lord over them. or It says, it says this in Psalm 2, the, the cry of rebellious man's heart. It says, let us break the chains and throw off the shackles. And that's what man is like, supremely, Adam and Eve. And, and, and we've all inherited the same sin. And you know, God's rule over our life, if we're unredeemed, if we're not born again, if God has not filled us with his spirit and renewed us, man, it's like chains around us. It's like shackles on our feet and our hands. And let, let us break the chains and throw off the shackles, it says in Psalm 2, verse 3. This is the attitude, man, we all have inherited from Adam and Eve. Oh, man, this control God has over my life. It's It's unbearable. I got to get rid of it. I got to cast off these chains. Break these shackles. I feel like a prisoner. Enough of this God thing. I'm casting off the chains. God lets us do that. He let Adam and Eve do it. So man misinterprets God's love and God's grace and God's blessed over his rule for chains and shackles. He does. We do. And then he goes off and makes a colossal mess of his life. Separated from God's love and grace, separated from God, the only source of life and blessing, and the life and blessing is replaced by death and God's judgment. So he, sh- he, he throws off God's chains and he replaces them, uh, w- the, the, the chains, again, of, of lo- which, which really are love and grace and blessing, and he, he exchanges them for, for death and judgment. But God gave, in the midst of the death and judgment, he gave a promise, a promise to send his son a promise to send his son to undo what Adam and Eve did, to restore what had been lost. And Jesus Christ was that son. He came into the world declaring this, Luke 19.10. Jesus came into the world declaring, the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so Jesus came, and he and his forerunner, John the Baptist, began with this message. Remember what it was? 
repent because the kingdom of God is upon you. In other words, you have the opportunity to have God's rule, his perfect, loving, grace-filled, blessed rule restored into your life. And, and you have the opportunity to be saved from God's holy judgment and from death and hell. And listen, Jesus backed up his message with his life. With a perfect life, the Bible says he was tempted in every way that we are tempted, but without sin. And, and he accompanied his message also, as we've just read, with an outpouring of miracles never seen before or since. There's a couple places in, in the book of Matthew where it says that all day and night, people, the lame, the paralyzed, the sick were brought to them, and he healed them all. So back here in Luke chapter 7, where we are today, um, some, we read, we started off reading in verse 29, some saw it for what it was. It was so obvious that the Son of God had come, and they ran to him. They obeyed the message. They repented. They believed. And God's rule, his reign, was reestablished in their life. They entered the kingdom of God. But others, they still wanted to be like God. Satan says, God doesn't want you to do that because if you do, you will be like God. And and they just gave in to the very same temptation that's been plaguing people since uh, the, the beginning of creation. They wanted to be like God. They didn't want the rule of God in their lives. They wanted to be the ruler, the governor of their own lives, so much so that when confronted with the undeniable fact that John the Baptist was the one who the prophet spoke about, who would introduce the Messiah to the world, they said he had a demon. They so wanted to stay in full control of their lives and keep God out that when confronted with the undeniable fact that Jesus was the Son of God, they say he's a drunk. So what what are you and I, what are we supposed to take from this, from that? The Bible says all Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 2.16. And God wants all Scripture to have a certain effect on you. He, has a, he wants the, these verses this morning to, to do something to you, to you sitting here, and to me. But what is that? Does the Holy Spirit include these verses in the Bible so we can sit back and look at these Pharisees and, and, and religious leaders and say to ourselves, what a bunch of idiots, what a bunch of wicked fools. How could they possibly have responded to Jesus like this? No, quite the opposite. God includes these verses. Please listen to me here. In order to give us a fear, a fear, a holy fear, of what we're capable of. Don't play the fool. 
and read these verses and just shake your head at these Pharisees. Let me tell you, your heart in the in in the in the uh, in the in the middle of your heart, you are you have what's necessary to do the the, the very same thing. The Lord wants it to sink in deep that this is where a love of sin can take you. This is where a, a love of self can take you. A, a love of the world can take you. It can. Uh, the, the Lord wants it to sink in deeply that you and I have the capacity to make the most absurd and ridiculous excuses, rationalizations, in our mind to excuse ourselves from giving God complete rule and reign over our lives. Now, there are some of you this morning sitting here. Man or woman, in your own mind, in the language of your mind, in the conversation that you have with with yourself in your own mind, you are going through some pretty ridiculous extremes to justify what you're doing in your life. And you know it. And this word is speaking to you. This word that the Holy Spirit placed right here in the Bible, you are going to ridiculous extremes rationalizing your behavior to justify retaining control over a certain area of your life, or maybe it's your entire life. And to an unbiased audience, if you were to, if that excuse, that rationalization that you've been, that's been circulating in your mind were, were projected onto the screen for all to hear, it would look no different than Jesus is a drunk. Or John the Baptist has a demon. And if that's you this morning, and you're resisting, you're resisting God's rule in, in your life, his perfect, loving, grace-filled, blessed rule, stop it. And there's a reason. God brought you into a conference center in a hotel this morning. <laughs> this crazy idea for the location of a church. It's to let you know that you need to stop it now and let go. Let's move on to verse, well, actually, verse 35 says, Jesus finishes this by saying, but wisdom is justified by her, by all her children, meaning... My words will be proved right by the lives of the children of God, of the men and women who accept me. And the words and the actions and, and the things that are said by the people who are rejecting me, their wor words will be proved wrong by their own lives. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's move on to verse 36. Now, verse 36, Luke, the writer, and actually we know it's the Holy Spirit using Luke, 
He takes us from general to specific. So up to now, he's been talking generally, right? He's, he's, he's talking about tax collectors, the worst men and women of the day. No one's specific. He, he, he's, uh, you know, these the worst men and women of the day. They're running to Jesus in order to come under his gracious rule, be restored uh, with God into the kingdom of God. Verse 29, and when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God. They came to God. But then in verse 30, it says that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, uh, no one specific, again, doesn't mention any one specific, he they're, they're doing all these things to dismiss me, dismiss my rule and God's reign over their lives in order to um, reject me, in order to justify rejecting me. But in verse 36, he goes from uh, general to specific. We are introduced here to a woman. It's called, she's referred to as the, a sinful woman. And she represents... The former, meaning she is a woman which society would call one of its worst. We're introduced to her. We're also introduced to a Pharisee, a religious leader, a person who, in the eyes of society, was, was a moral, was a good person, was a nice person, regularly went to church, paid some money probably every week to the temple, did good things, uh, were introduced to a Pharisee, a religious leader. And Luke puts this woman and this man alongside of each other, and he paints one of the most striking, profound contrasts in the Bible. Let's read it. Verse 36 says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to dinner, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, so, so perfumed oil. This is high, ex extremely expensive in that day. And she stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Verse 4, he says, and Jesus answered. In other words, he thought he was having a private conversation. Sorry, you, you, can't, with, you can't do that with God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing which with to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? 
Simon answered and said, Well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. And then Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Verse 50 says, and then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So, To me, as someone who teaches the Bible, I think the most wonderful thing about this story is that it speaks for itself. It really doesn't need people like me up here to explain it. The message for you, for me, is clear. Who are you going to be like? Who are you going to be like? Who are you like? Again, these, uh, God didn't put this stuff. This is God-breathed. Second Timothy says this is God-breathed, this, these verses right here. He didn't just put them there, this, this Pharisee and this woman here, so we can sort of read it like we're just reading a book casually on a train. No, this applies to you. You either fall into one of two categories, the woman or the Pharisee. It says of the sinful woman in, in, uh, verse, at the end of verse 37, it says she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and she stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with tears. Let me tell you something which may surprise you. If you've given your life to Jesus, at some point, this must happen to you. And I underline the word must. If you've given your life to Jesus... At some point, this must happen with you. Now, it doesn't necessarily happen when you first are saved. Most of the time, I don't think it does. But listen, eventually, because the Bible says that when you ask Jesus into your heart, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, into your life, you become a temple of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will drive you to this place where you realize 
just how ugly your sin is and just how beautiful the Lord is, just how much sin you have and how much he has taken it away, obliterated it, cast it out, purged it, wiped it away, and now he remembers it no more. On Wednesday nights, I'm teaching the study through the book of John, and we've been studying the Holy Spirit. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, when he comes into your life, he will guide you into all truth, and he will glorify me. And so verse 37 says, she brought in a flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears. At some point in your life, This must happen inside your heart. Because that's what the Holy Spirit promises to do, to glorify Jesus. This is a beautiful picture of a human being who has accepted God's invitation into her life just to have uh, his rule, his perfect, loving, grace-filled, blessed, blessed rule restored into her life or brought into her life. And it must happen to every person who gives their life to Christ and is, in, is on their way to heaven. Now, the key to understanding uh, this, this passage, you know, I said before, doesn't need someone like me to teach it, but people like me just can't help ourselves, so we have to, have to say something. <laughs> the key to understanding the heart of God with respect to both of these, this Pharisee and this woman, is in, in verse 40 through 42. And, and remember now, Jesus loved this Pharisee. He's just talked to us in the previous chapter. Love your enemies. What credit is it to you? If you love those who love you, well, he virtually, not I would say virtually all, not every story about Pharisees in the Bible is they're coming to attack Jesus. They were his enemies. He accepts the invitation because he loves this man. Let me tell you, most of the people who come to the Lord in the United States of America who come to Jesus... Their life prior to coming to Jesus looks more like this guy. I know mine was than this woman. He loves this man. And he comes to his house to speak truth into his life. But the key to understanding God's heart towards this Pharisee named Simon and this woman who is nameless, they don't name her here, It's verses 40 through 42. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, Simon, I have something to tell you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. In other words, there was a man who had given two people money or or goods or whatever, and, and the two people owed him the money. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii. A denarii was... One day's wage, so 500 uh, days' wages. That's what, something like a year and a half or something like that? And the other 50. One owed him 500 days' wages and the other 50 days' wages. And 42 says this. This is so important. And when they had nothing with which to repay, 
he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he, uh, whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. So don't miss this. There was one person there who owed 500 days wages. There was another person there who had owed him the creditor 50 days wages. But both of them were unable to repay. The Pharisee who had lived a moral life, a life according to maybe the, the, the Bible and the commandments of God, he was the guy who owed 50 days wages. But according to the Bible, he has no ability to repay God for the sins, the violation of the law, for breaking God's commandment. He has no ability to repay the Bible says that even if someone owes God one day's wage, the debt because of one sin, they have no ability. They are incapable. They're spiritually dead, and they can't repay it. The sinful women, who everyone, all commentators uh, agree that this was no doubt a prostitute, she owed 500 days' wages. She had really racked up a life in disobedience to God. I mean, she had just a boatload but, but, uh, of sin in her past, but she was equally incapable of, paying, uh, of repaying the debt. In other words, everyone is identical in terms of this. The judgment of God is over them because of their sin. They're on equal footing. So another way, you know, I grew up by the ocean on the Cape. And we used to sail all around and one of the things, or go around in boats and my brothers, we used to drag each other around in boats, you know, throw a rope off and, you know, you're dragging, <laughs> dragging a rope. And sometimes, you know, most of the, the shore off the Cape, it's pretty shallow, you know, it's 20 feet deep, that's it. But every once in a while, like off of Vineyard, in Vineyard Sound, off of Marshall Vineyard, it goes down 150 feet. I guess why those whales, you know, Moby Dick, uh, whatever, you know, the whales go through there. But let me tell you, there's this one thing I knew. Whether I was in 20 feet of water or 150 feet, either place, if my lungs filled up with water, it didn't make a bit of difference whether I was in 20 feet of water or 150 feet of water. I was, I was going to drown. And it would be completely absurd if I'm drowning in 50 feet, uh, rather in 150 feet of water, or to use Jesus' numbers here in 500 feet of water, it'd be completely absurd. You know, help me, move me to 50 feet of water. What good is that going to do? No good. You're drowning. You're dead. You're on your way to judgment, eternal judgment, torment, L. It's not going to do you any good to, for you to somehow uh, pick up your life or transform your life and put into a body of someone who hasn't sinned as much. Doesn't do a bit of good. You know, it's really interesting. Sometimes, uh, periodically, I'll talk to someone after church who is here for the first time. Actually, it's first time, one of the first times they've come into a Christian church, either that or they haven't been to a church in a long time. And 
they look around at people, and some of you, I, I'm convinced, you're, you're probably like this today. You're looking around, and you're like, I don't belong here. <laughs> Not with these people. These are good people. I mean, th- these people, like, they know church. They know the church thing. Can you imagine being this woman coming into this house of this Pharisee? I don't belong with these people. Obviously, they're closer to God than I am. That's where she got it really, really, really wrong. Jesus, as I believe later on in the book of Luke, he says the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going, getting into the kingdom of heaven before you. I think they picked up stones and tried to throw them at him at that point. He was telling the religious leaders. So whether you have, whether you're, whether you're going through life, if you, it, when you're going through life without God, whether you are swimming in 50 feet of sin that you've accomp- uh, you know, accumulated over the years or 500 miles of sin, you equally need God's salvation. And the dangerous thing about this Pharisee is he didn't understand his need. He didn't understand that 50 feet of sin was more than enough to plunge him into the depths of everlasting torment and punishment. He didn't understand that. That's, and, and, but Jesus loved him so much, God came, he, Jesus said he came to the world to seek and save sinners. He came right into his house. And, and I pray that this Pharisee is with us in, in heaven someday. There's a great likelihood that he is. Start thinking about what Jesus said. So it says in verse 48, we'll close here. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We're literally in the Greek, go into peace. Your faith has saved you. You can't be saved once you've accumulated any sin, much less the kind of sin that you came into this house with. But be at peace. It is by faith in me that you're saved, that the Holy Spirit comes in and takes possession of your life and saves you. And Jesus says this for all to hear, including everyone here this morning. You know, we're, we're going to close with a worship song. Actually, the worship team can come up now, and we can close with a worship song. But we're going to have a couple people praying on the sides uh, as well. If you've been asked to pray, you can come up now. And if you have never, by faith, Ask Jesus into your life, just like this woman does, did. As I said, every person at some point needs to get to the place where this woman is. She did it in public. That's why we feel like we need to make 
It's extend an invitation in public because every instance in the Bible, virtually every instance, when someone comes to the Lord, they go public uh, with it. And so that's why we have an invitation like that. If, if you've never done that um, in your life, if you've never by faith come to Jesus and place your trust in him, you can do it during the closing worship song or anything else you have uh, to uh, pray uh, about or for, you can come up and, and, and pray as well. Why don't we rise for uh, the closing worship song and just pray. Close in prayer now. Father, we just thank you so much for this wonderful picture, this wonderful contrast, Lord of a man and a woman. And, and, and Lord, we all fall into, what, you know, in, into a group of people, uh, Lord. We either have her heart where, Lord, we understand the ugliness of our sin and, and the beauty of, of the work that your son Jesus did, or, or we, we fall into the, the, the group of, of the Pharisee who doesn't understand his need for salvation, Because he, he just believes he's good, Lord. And, and, and Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that every man, woman, and child in this room will, will by the end of the service, will move to that place where this woman was, where she was weeping, Lord Jesus, at your feet, cleaning your feet with her tears, because she, weeping because she understood the depths of, their, uh, of her sin, but the greatness of your forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that you'd give every person in this room a fresh understanding of your grace. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense, Lord, that we'd all be just refreshed as we go out. And Lord, that when we go out, we'll give even as we've received this morning, Lord. We thank you for this word and what you want to do through it in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.